With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'm Sonny Bunch. I'm very pleased to be joined today uh, by Aaron Pernosky, uh, who is a professor at Case Western. Uh, he teaches copyright, trademark, and property law. His research on the intersection of intellectual and personal property explores the notion of ownership in a digital economy. This is uh, a key topic for me as well as a champion of physical media. I've, I've been out there trying to tell people for a long time that this is a sensitive topic, holding on to the things that you actually own. Uh, the reason I asked Aaron to be on the show today, uh, I'm, I'm very excited to have him on because we are talking about one of my pet issues, uh, which is physical media versus digital media and the the concept of ownership, frankly, uh, but uh, that is kind of in conflict with the two of them. Um, I uh, I recently uh, quoted from a paper that he, he co-wrote with uh, one of his colleagues about the idea of the buy button on uh, on sites like Amazon and Apple and what that actually what people actually think that means. Um, but the the very specific reason I asked him to be on the show is because there's a lawsuit that is uh, that is being introduced that has been introduced just recently introduced uh, that is essentially uh, saying that Apple is misleading consumers by telling them uh, that when they click the buy button, they actually own the thing. The, they own the digital thing they're buying. Um, can we can we talk a little bit about that, Aaron? And uh, what what exactly is going on in this this realm? Yeah, this is a really important set of of issues, right? So, you know, we've all kind of lived through this transition over the last 15, 20 years where we've moved kind of as an economy away from, you know, tangible artifacts and towards paying for access to information. And that's, I think, really redefined in some fundamental ways our relationship to media and also, you know, to some, you know, physical goods too, right? Your relationship to your your refrigerator, your garage door is is a little bit uh, garage door opener is a little bit different when it's controlled by software and and depends on on access to data. And so, what this lawsuit is getting at is the mismatch between what consumers believe they're paying for and what they're actually receiving when, you know, when they acquire, you know, digital music or digital movies, uh, those, those sorts of products. Yeah. So you, you wrote, uh, the end of ownership, uh, which is a, I think a very, uh, perfect title. It was a MIT press in 2016. Um, I, I, I want to talk about this idea of ownership and what ownership actually means to people in the digital age and what it means to corporations in the digital age, because they're, they're very much intention here, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for us as individual consumers, you know, I think we have a set of expectations that are really rooted in, you know, hundreds, thousands of years of markets that were, you know, really um, built around tangible goods, right? So when you own something, you get to keep possession of it for as long as you want. You get to sell it. You get to give it away. You can destroy it if you want to, right? You have all these sorts of rights that are um, sort of built into the idea of ownership. And in the digital space, those typical rules that really come from the law of 
personal property have been supplanted by license terms, right? Um, we all click these buttons that say, I agree. None of us read the actual document. And if you do, the document is mostly delivering a bunch of bad news to you. It's telling you all the things <laughs> that you can't do, all the things that are restricted. Um, and so ownership, when it comes to those sorts of digital assets, has largely, not entirely, but, but largely been sort of written out of the picture and instead, we have to kind of rely on the the uh, the, the the permissions that um, copyright holders and big retailers like Apple and Amazon are, are willing to give us, um, and that I think really is um, a, a big part of um, the, the 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 shift that we've seen away from buying things towards more reliance on subscription services, right? If ownership is off the table, why not just pay your monthly bill to listen to whatever music you want? Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, just speaking from personal experience, this is one of the reasons why I essentially stopped buying digital albums from Amazon. I was like, fine, screw it. If I, if these are, if I'm just going to lose a lot of these things at a certain point anyway, I might as well just sign up for, you know, Spotify or Amazon premium or whatever, whatever uh, service, you know, is easiest to get to because it, it is, it's a little bit, I, frankly, it's a little bit disconcerting as somebody who uh, takes a fair amount of pride is the wrong word, but carefully cultivates what what I add to my my various libraries. So let's just look at what this actually means in a in a personal and 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 professional way, right? If when somebody clicks the buy button on Amazon and they're like, I don't want I don't want to rent this, I want to buy it. What are they actually buying? What is the thing that they are that they are that they think? Uh, as opposed to what they think they've got, what have they actually purchased? So what Amazon and Apple and all the other big digital retailers will tell you if you read the fine print, they will say usually quite explicitly, this content is licensed, not sold, right? That phrase is typically there in these agreements. And what that means is you have a contingent set of permissions to listen, to watch, to read, um, and very little guarantee beyond that. Um, you certainly don't have the rights that you normally would with, let's say, a book to resell it or give it away or you know lend it to someone. Um, but you might not even have the right to uh, maintain possession of that digital uh, asset moving forward. That's that's part of what this lawsuit against. Apple and earlier lawsuits uh, against Amazon are about um, is that even if you, you know, even if you quote buy something and it's in your purchased folder, um, if you don't have a local copy of that material saved and you're relying on sort of cloud-based access, that stuff can disappear. It can disappear because the copyright holder or the publisher doesn't want to make it available anymore. There are stories of, um, you know, remastered albums being released. And if you bought the, if you bought the old version from Apple, 
it disappears because the publisher wants to push people towards the you know new remastered version with extra tracks or whatever it might be. If you move from one country to another and the material is licensed in country A, but it's not within the scope of the license in country B, then you're not going to be able to download your movie, you know, once uh, once you move to Spain. Um, the most egregious example of this, and this is a decade old or so now, but it, it's still, I think, um, representative of this problem. Amazon got into a dispute with a publisher about who actually had the right to sell certain ebooks. And their solution was to not only stop selling the ebooks, but to remotely delete them from people's devices. And, you know, Orwell's 1984 was literally one of the books that they deleted. Yeah. And, you know, like someone should have, you know, in the legal department should have checked with the people in the PR department uh, before <laughs> pressing that button. Right. But, that that sort of problem persists. And, um, you know, when companies like Amazon and Apple claim they're selling you something, um, that's not, I think, what most people expect. And in fact, like, they don't actually have the right to sell you anything, right? They're, they're not the owners uh, of these works, they're licensed to them as well, right? And so, a basic principle of of you know property law is that you can only pass on the rights that you actually possess. And so, if Amazon is licensing material from Universal Music, um, the most they can do is pass on the the full set of rights that they've acquired, which um, you know d- does not allow them. Uh, at that point to, to actually engage in a, a sale in, in the traditional sense of the word. Yeah. And I want to come back to this idea of what rights uh, versus, you know, property are being uh, passed along in a minute. We'll talk a little bit about the doctrine of first sale in a moment. Um, but I, I want to I, I just want to drill down on this because it really the, 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 the 1984 story is like kind of the classic digital ownership horror story. This is the this is the thing that folks, including myself, point to when they say, look, the thing that you buy, you've not actually bought these companies uh, now will tell you that that is that is not the that is not how it works anymore. If you if you purchase a thing and if you download it to your computer or your hard drive or whatever, we will not uh, reach in there and and take it out anymore. Um, a, I want to I want to ask if that's actually true. If that if we if we know for certainty that that is an actual guarantee that people can uh, can count on. But B, uh, also just discuss the way that this kind of this kind of goes against the promise of digital ownership, which has always been like, look, if you buy it, it's in the cloud and you can access it from wherever, whenever, you know, we 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 are uh, trying to save you storage space. And even if they even if that remains true in a in a physical sort of way, even if it means that you're not, you know, storing shelves upon shelves of books or DVDs or CDs or whatever, uh, you know, people people still have to buy the hard drives on which these things are stored, uh, and I, I feel like that's kind of a violation of the idea that they had the the, the sort of utopian ideal that they had that they had promised people with that they had sold people on that this this is going to be an an easy and efficient way of keeping everything without actually having to keep everything. Right. Right. Yeah. So to the first point. I think it's unlikely that a company is going to step in it in exactly the same way that Amazon did a decade ago. But I don't believe in the idea that there is some guarantee that a company is never going to, you know, use its power to reach in 
to your hardware and take things away or disable functionality. So one way that still might happen is video content is still you know, DRM protected um, in mm-hmm. almost all circumstances, right? And even if they can't go in and delete the file, it's easy enough um, to use that DRM to disable your ability to actually play that file, even if it's still living on your hard drive, right? So that's that's one way mm-hmm. that this happens. Um, you know, companies go out of business. Companies shut down services, Um you know, a, 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 again, around a decade ago, Walmart, when it was still in the you know MP3 business, decided, well, this isn't profitable enough. We're going to shut down our MP3 uh, uh, storefront and the DRM servers that allow people to play the the content. Now, the FTC stepped in there and and prevented that from happening. But you know, companies do have that power, um, especially when. You know, whether you know it or not, your computer has to basically phone home and ask permission to open up the files that you store on it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we saw this also like not not too long ago, right, with um, uh, uh, Peloton, right? Um, you know, they, they tell people, well, the, you know, the treadmills aren't safe. And so we're going to disable this function, uh, until you, you know, pay for a subscription that way, you know, they can update the software, do whatever it is. That's another way that, you know, you can use network connectivity and software to, to basically, uh, remove functionality. Um, so I think we've, I think we've got to be worried about that to your point about the promise here, right? The idea where, yeah, you don't need to be burdened by all of this stuff all the time and it can live in the cloud and, and, you know, you can, you can trust us. Um, you know, companies, I think one want to sort of obscure the reality here that, you know, when something is stored on the cloud, you have far less control over it. It might be convenient, you know, it might allow you to save some storage space, um, but fundamentally it puts someone else in between you and the material, the files, the data that you think of as yours. And we've seen, you know, example after example of, um, you know, how that can, um, you know, really interfere with people's ability to, to use the things that they've, uh, that they've paid for. So I think, I think you're right to be, to be skeptical about, um, those, those claims. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about first sale doctrine. Let's get let's get a little bit of a history lesson here, because I think this is I think it's a really interesting uh, way to kind of crystallize the 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 lack of ownership that people kind of have right now. Um, What is all right? What is what is first sale doctrine and how does that apply to physical media as opposed to digital media? Yeah, so the first sale doctrine is this like really fundamental, uh, in my mind, kind of one of the fundamental limitations on the scope of intellectual property rights. And in copyright law, we call it the first sale doctrine. Uh, in trademark law and patent law, we call it exhaustion, but it's still, it's all basically the same thing. And the idea is that once the holder of intellectual property rights sells a particular copy or a particular embodiment of their work, whether that's a book or a patented invention, you know, an an automobile, um, once they sell it to the end user, 
their ability to control um, how it's used and whether or not it is distributed um, or you know resold uh, comes to an end, right? They don't have control over it after they've received compensation. You know that's why we have public libraries and used bookstores and used record stores and eBay, right? All of that stuff depends on this first sale doctrine because otherwise, without it, um, copyright holders would have a say in every single sale or exchange of uh, a copy of one of, uh, of one of their works. And in the digital space, um, that rule has not been applied. Um, so in the digital space, there are really two problems. One, the first sale doctrine on its face, at least as it's written in, in the statute in the U.S. Copyright Act, only applies to what's called distribution, to the exchange of a copy between one person and another. It doesn't apply to reproduction, to the making of new copies. And for digital works, it's really hard for me to give you a copy without making a copy, right? I can put it on a flash mm -hmm. drive, but that's a reproduction, right? Now there are two of them floating around in the world. The other problem is the first sale doctrine only applies if you're the owner of that copy, right? If I go out and I buy a book from my local bookstore, I own that physical object. Uh, because of these license agreements that we've been talking about um, that specify this is license, not sold, most courts um, have determined that the owners, or sorry, that the, 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 uh, the possessors of these digital assets are not really owners of those assets, mm -hmm. right? I might pay for it. I might keep it on my device, but the courts say you don't actually own it. Therefore you can't, uh, you can't transfer it. And this has all sorts of, uh, consequences, right? Not just in terms of, you know, if you want to sell, uh, a used copy of something to somebody, but also, I mean, you just can't, you can't pass things down to, to children or you can't, uh, you can't give them to a deceased spouse, right? I mean, is that, is that more like, or if you die, you cannot necessarily pass on your, uh, digital property to to a living spouse, right? So this is a really interesting question uh, and an important question, right? As as we're moving to creating these sort of you know libraries of digital assets rather than libraries of physical assets, the the question comes up: like, what happens um, when you die or when you're writing your will? And there's been a lot of conversation about this, and I, I think I think the answer is still a little bit uncertain. Um, I think it's certainly the case that I could leave a hard drive or leave a computer uh, to someone in my will, and that computer or that hard drive might be full of digital files, right? Mm -hmm. um, so long as those are accessible, so long as those aren't, you know, encumbered by DRM in a way that requires you to know my password or log into my account or something along those lines. I think as a practical matter, you can uh, transfer the physical assets that contain the digital works. Um, but if a copyright holder objected to that and wanted to prevent the transfer of those works from one person to another, I, I do think there's an argument to be made there that's going to turn on exactly what um, 
the license terms provide. And if the license terms, as they, as they often do, say these materials may not be copied, may not be transferred to any person under any circumstances, um, then you know I think you're in a more tenuous position. Now, is any copyright holder going to sue the average person uh, over this issue? I hope not. Uh, but I can imagine circumstances where it might come up, right? You have somebody who has a really valuable collection of rare materials, maybe materials that the copyright holder doesn't want to be uh, out in the public anymore, um, as as sometimes happens, right? If you if you were the one person that like managed to get the digital download of Song of the South, uh, Disney's probably like really interested in making sure that that stays under wraps, right? Um, so I, I think yeah. it's a, it's an important problem and 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 one that I think still requires some some real thought, um, you know, at this at the sort of state legislative level to figure out how do we make sure that people can do this without question. Um, and right now, I think there are too many uh, unanswered questions there. Yeah. Do you think this is a state versus federal issue? I mean, is this not a is this not a uh, a situation where Congress could uh, you know, kind of guide the copyright office on on what to what to do here. So I think a lot of the best solutions would happen at the federal level. I think you know um, Congress certainly has the power to expand the scope of the first sale doctrine to expand the scope of ownership. I think it is highly unlikely, given the way copyright legislation in particular works that we will that we'll see that um, that kind of path pursued successfully. Um, but it can be done. Jason Schultz, one of my, my co-authors, and I wrote a paper um, several years ago now where we we basically write that statute. This is what it would look like to, to fix some of these mm-hmm. problems. Um, one thing, though, to keep in mind is... Well, what, what would it look like? I mean, just to... Uh, sorry, no, I don't no, mean no. to... To interrupt, but uh, what, what what would it actually what what would your uh, what would your you know hypothetical legislation look like in a uh, let's uh, reminder that we are dealing with a fairly you know general audience here. Let's we don't need to to get into terribly technical stuff, but just what what would your big idea protections be? So I think the biggest issue is that the Copyright Act does not define what it means for an individual, a consumer to be an owner of a copy, right? What does it mean for me to own that digital asset? We've got like really good intuitive ideas of what it means to own a physical object, but we don't have a great sense of of what ownership means in in the digital space. And so what I think Congress could do is give some content to that term owner. Um, And one thing that we think is really important to identifying you as an owner is to ask about the acquisition of this asset. Did you pay a one-time price for perpetual or open-ended possession of that object, right? If I pay $9.99 and what you're telling me is, unless you come in and delete my files in the middle of the night and then give me a refund, I pay $9.99 for the files and I get to keep them forever. That to me sounds like ownership. Um, And courts, I think, have been led astray by companies that come in and say, no, 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 we wrote this license agreement that puts all these limitations in place. 
And that's what defines this relationship. We actually don't think that those license agreements are, are typically kind of like worth the digital paper that they're written on. Ownership is defined by the nature of this transaction. So we ought to look at like what actually happens, right? What's the exchange of, of uh, you know, cash uh, for goods and services? That ought to tell us the answer there. Um, Congress could do that. If it doesn't, states can do that too, right? A state has the power, right, under its kind of, kind of general um, principles of property law to define what ownership means. Um, and if they do, I think there's a pretty strong case that even you know, federal courts within that state have to respect what the state tells us. So if the state says, you know, for purposes of um, you know, uh, probate law, you're the owner of your digital files uh, and you can leave them to someone in your will, then I think unless Congress says otherwise, um, that state law definition of ownership ought to, uh, ought to prevail. Um, there have been efforts in some states to um, put some rules in place around the transfer of digital assets, but they usually have really big copyright carve-outs and say, yeah, of course, you can, you can transfer your digital assets to someone in your will, your family photographs that you took, for example, that are stored on your device. But mm-hmm. if somebody else holds the copyright, we're not wading into that because there's some worry about mm-hmm. um, about maybe conflicting with with federal law. But the state gets to define what ownership means under state property law, and so if Congress doesn't do it, I'm I'm happy to see some states experiment and and come up with better definitions. What's really interesting is in this new lawsuit is that the. Uh there was a previous lawsuit that was dismissed, right, against, uh, I believe it was Amazon, for the reasons that you said that, they, look, the, the the companies have these licenses, and if people don't read the licenses, then, but, but that does feel like a dodge just on a common sense level. I mean, it, it just feels like, you know, look, we, we are all rational, real people uh, who get a million of these license agreements on a pretty regular basis, and none of us read them all the way to the end, but we're not judges who read things like this on a regular basis, you know, as part of their work all the time, right? I mean, I've, I just feel like there's, I feel like there's a disconnect between what the judiciary is looking at and what the real lived experience is. Absolutely. I mean, the, the best illustration of this is a few years, Chief Justice Roberts gave an interview where somebody, you know, asked him about these license terms. And he was like, yeah, I don't, I don't read those things either. Um, so even, even in their daily lives, right, the people at the highest level of our court system are like, I, I don't have time to read the you know, terms of service for everything I do on the internet. That's all we would ever do. Um, and that does create this space within which companies have the ability to sort of promise one thing and then deliver something else. Um, and like, that's, that's really at the core of what these, um, handful of lawsuits that have been filed against both Apple and Amazon are alleging, right? That the basic theory is they're engaged in false advertising. They are promising one thing by using words like buy and purchase and own. Um, and then they're delivering something very different because they say, oh, well, actually, uh, no, you don't, you don't really own it. Um, 
you know, you know, you didn't really buy it. Uh, we're going to attach all these restrictions to what you can do with this material. And we might even take it away from you. That's one of the, the key allegations in, uh, in these class actions is that, um, on a somewhat regular basis, people are losing access to movies and music and television programming that they have, you know, uh, purportedly purchased. And, um, you know, I think, I think those cases are, are making a really, um, a really important point. So maybe in 2015 or 2016, uh, my, my co-author Chris Hufnagel and I wrote a paper, um, that made this argument. We went out and we like did a survey of, you know, 1500 or so consumers. We created a kind of, um, fictional, um, you know, online marketplace. And we showed people this buy now button, um, that, that we also commonly see. And we asked them like, what are the rights that you think come along with this purchase of, of a digital asset? And the percentages of people who really thought that they truly owned it, that they got to keep it forever, that they got to lend it or give it away or resell it were pretty significant. Um, you know, the general threshold in a false advertising case, uh, you know, for empirical evidence is showing that, you know, somewhere north of 15% of people are misled by your, your claim. Mm -hmm. And here, I mean, we had numbers from 30% to 80% on those questions showing that like people were really, um, misled by, by those sorts of, um, those sorts of advertising representations. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, again, I just think it's a, the lived experience as we understand it mm -hmm. is very different than what is suggested by those terms. Um, I, uh, I, I've asked everything I wanted to ask here. I mean, I, again, this is kind of my, this is one of my hobby horses, the, 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 the importance of physical media versus digital media. Um, and I, I, I just want to, I, I was, I was hoping you could maybe, um, share what you, what you hope for, uh, for digital media to be vis-a-vis -vis physical media. I mean, I, that, it's a weird way to put it, but I mean, what, what, what do you, what do you hope the future could offer folks in, in terms of, uh, ownership rights and the, the, you know, uh, I, ideas of, of, of ownership, you know, uh, in the, in the digital, the evolving digital realm that we find ourselves yeah, so I think there's sort of like a weak and strong version of what a better future could look like. The the weak version, which is the version I think we might get if these lawsuits are successful, is the companies have to be more honest about what they are offering. If you're not offering real, genuine ownership, then you've got to come up with some new terminology to, to express that to people, to, to make that clear. And we're starting to see some companies do that already. If you look at the communications from, from Disney around their digital offerings, they're really careful not to say things like buy or purchase or own. And, you know, that's more transparency in the market that allows people to make decisions in a, in a way that's more informed. And I, I think that's good. Um, but it doesn't get us like real, genuine digital ownership. Um, I don't see any legal or technical barrier to a true sense of owning a digital file in the same way that you own any other uh, asset, that you own any physical asset. There are 
strong uh, private um, corporate interests that uh, that push against that kind of that kind of ownership. Um, but I think what I would like to see is a world in which a person who acquires a digital asset has as best as we can recreate them, the same kinds of rights that they have over physical assets. That means if I buy a digital movie and I watch it five times and I'm like, eh, I'm over it, I should be able to give it away to someone else. And when I give it away, like I don't have it anymore. I don't mean I get to make a copy for all my friends, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is transferred out of my possession and to someone else's. And there, there are technological solutions that can actually, um, I never want to use the word guarantee, but technological solutions that can um, can help facilitate that kind of one-to-one transfer that we're used to from the physical world. Um, so I think resale ought to be on the table. I think um, you know, gifting and lending ought to be on the table for, for digital assets. Um, we have the technology to do that. We have the the legal infrastructure to do that. What we don't have is um, a, a an environment in which um, you know the private interests in in the copyright industries are going to stand for um, restoring genuine ownership to consumers. They don't like it because. It creates competitive pressures in these markets. It keeps prices lower. Um, you know, the, there's a, in, a, an, an executive from a video game uh, publisher a few years ago who said that the resale market is worse for video games than piracy. Right? They don't want it. Mm-hmm. They don't want to see it. And and so I think that's that's the the, the real fight there is is kind of overcoming. Um, you know that that understandable uh, desire to you know to keep these markets as uh, free from from uh, competition from secondary markets as possible. Yeah. Well, great. I, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If there's anything you think folks out there should uh, should understand about this this topic. Um, what did what would I what would you like to impart to the people before we sign off here? So, I mean, we've been focused a lot on digital media, and I think that's really a hugely important piece of this puzzle. Um, a lot of these issues bleed back into the physical world, right? Our relationship with our electronic devices, our home appliances, our cars. Uh, I've been writing most recently about the right to repair movement. Uh, and that's another way in which ownership is being eroded, right? If I can't go out and have my phone fixed by whoever I choose or do it myself, um, there's a sense in which I don't really own it uh, as well. And so what I'm really worried about uh, lately is, is that kind of uh, the, the way in which these limitations on ownership that started in the digital space are getting kind of reabsorbed into the physical world. Um, and I, I think that's a really troubling trend. What, uh, what, just explain what the, what right to repair is. I mean, I, I am unfamiliar. I, 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 I am, I am unfamiliar outside of a very general sense, um, of, of what this movement is trying to do. So the, the right to repair is a, is a pretty broad term that, um, that, that covers the, the general sense that we as individuals ought to be able uh, to exert control in repairing the physical goods around us, right? And there are a bunch of reasons that we might not be able to, um, you know, 
companies uh, can use software to prevent you from repairing a device or to prevent it from working after it's been repaired. Companies can restrict access to replacement parts. Um, Companies can insist that you use their authorized repair networks and not go to like your local mom and pop shop. So this is true for Apple. This is true for John Deere, right? They, they, they impose a lot of restrictions on how farmers can, um, can interact with the equipment that they buy. And the right to repair is pushing back on that. Um, so last year, I think in 27 states around the country, there were right to repair bills introduced that would require these device makers to make parts and diagnostic tools and repair information available to independent repair shops and to owners of these devices. Um, that's just one uh, you know, one strategy among many, uh, we're seeing action in Europe. So France introduced these mandatory repairability scores last year, where every phone, every washing machine uh, out in the market, every television comes with a one to 10 scale on how easy it is to repair that device. And so that's another way of getting information to consumers so they can say, oh, wait, yeah, this one's $50 cheaper, but it's got a six and the other one's got a nine, you know, and we, we should care about how easy it is to, to repair these things. So um, I see a, a pretty um, deep connection between those issues and the, the kind of digital media concerns that, that we've been talking about. And I kind of want to bridge that gap so people can, can see the kind of global trend here. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Aaron Prezanowski at Case Western. Love to have you on the show, uh, and we should get you on again when your when your uh, when your book comes out in twenty twenty two. That's right. Is that the that's when the next one is hitting? That's right. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, early early next year. Uh, great. Uh, so we'll we'll get you back on then. And thank you very much for listening to the show. Uh, I'm Sonny Bunch at the Bulwark. We'll be back next week with another episode. See you guys then. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.